copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 22, uh, verses 16 and 17. Like I just said, we are at the very end of our trip through the book of Revelation. We're finishing this up uh, next week. We've got one more sermon left to do after this one, and then we will be done. Uh, I would like you to stand with me out of the respect for the reading of God's word. We're just going to read uh, verses 16 and 17, uh, and then we will dive right into this sermon. Uh, Revelation chapter 22, uh, verses 16 and 17. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. And the spirit of the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for today. Lord, thank you for your blessings. Thank you for your free offer of the gift uh, of the water of life. Lord, we pray that you bless this time that we have together. Um, Lord, that you glorify yourself in it and help us to look more like you when we leave than we did when we got here. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Uh, checking the mail um, is an experience that all of us have. Some of us check snail mail, some of us check physical mail, some of us check or email, some of us check email when we should check the physical mail, but we just don't. Um, but it doesn't matter what kind of mail you check, it, it's a similar experience regardless. When you check the mail, you have the experience of going through a box, looking for something of value, knowing that it's probably just a boatload of junk, right? Very rarely is there something good in there. But if you receive something of value, it derives its value from one of two uh, ways, I guess you could say it gets value. First, it can have value because of what it contains. Maybe it's a legal document. Maybe it's a check. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a college acceptance letter. Uh, it doesn't really matter who stuffed the envelope or who clicked send in that case, does it? What you're actually looking for is what's in the envelope. That's what makes it matter. So some mail is important because of what's in it. And then there's some mail that's valuable because of the sender. Uh, the, I, I don't know about y'all, but I've got a box, uh, and Emily and I have a box at home, of cards that our family has, has sent us at various different times in our life. You know, Emily um, you know, got, some, got a card from her mom one time. I was uh, going through some stuff the other day. Emily got a card from her mom when she was in college that she was in a particularly stressful time. There were a lot of finals all at one time. And her mom just wrote her a little card and sent it to her in the mail. And this was years ago, and, and she kept it because there was a message from her mom and it scribbled inside it. Now, if you found that on the side of the road, that's not anything like finding a $100 bill, is it? That it's, it doesn't have any worth to you, but to her it's priceless because of who sent it to her. It has value uh, because of the sender. And then rarely, every so often, you get a letter in the mail that has both kinds of value, right? That the contents of it are valuable and the sender makes it valuable. Uh, and when you know that those things are coming, you, you, you expect those generally, you're on the lookout for those and you're checking the mail right when the, the mail truck or the mail car runs every day because you know that someone important has sent you something important and you don't want to miss it. Well, Revelation is that kind of letter. That Revelation's contents are incredibly important and there could be no one more dignified and important than its sender. 
I want us to look at these two verses of the book of Revelation today and see that the message that Jesus sent us in the entirety of this book. Now, this is, we're entering kind of the epilogue, right? We've seen everything that's in the book, and now Jesus is talking to us about what's in the book. This is kind of the closing, goodbye, epilogue, that kind of thing. So I want us to see three truths about the book of Revelation, kind of from a 30,000-foot view, from Jesus himself and from the Apostle John's community by him. And first, I want us to see that the book of Revelation sends an important message. Jesus sends an important message in the book of Revelation to his church. When you look at verse 16, uh, Jesus speaks. Jesus himself speaks. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. Now, that's important. To testify these things in the churches. I'm the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. If you were to take this verse and boil it down to its essence, Jesus, the root and the offspring of David, took the initiative to send to the church, his bride, the bride of Christ, an important message about what was shortly going to happen. That he sent it to his people. He did not send it to individuals. Okay, yes, he sent it to the apostle John. That's true, but John was just tasked with the initial transcription. What happened after John got it? John's mission was to get it to who? Get it to the rest of the church. And then once the church got it, what was their job? Replication and dissemination. They had to copy it and they had to send it to other churches. And then the churches after them were responsible for its accurate transmission, both the text of the book and the theological accuracy of its teaching. The very fact that we're reading it right now today is proof positive that the church that came before us accurately transmitted this book down to us, that they were faithful in communicating the message that Jesus had. Pastors had to preach it. Teachers had to teach it. Evangelists had to spread it. Parents had to pass it down to their kids who would then grow up and pass it down to their kids. The reason we're gathered around this book today is that the church took that job seriously because they understood that the contents of it were important and its sender demanded their attention. First, the contents of Revelation is a promise that Jesus took the time to tell us how human history is going to end, and it ends with a victory for him and his people. How many of y'all have just tried to swear off turning on your TV to see what's happening? It's rough, isn't it? Guess what? The contents of this book that we've just gone through tells me it's going to get rough. Rougher than it is now. I know that sounds crazy. But I've already told you, I read a Puritan in the 1600s who looked out at his congregation and said, can there be any doubt that the Lord Jesus' return is just around the corner? Because can any of you conceive of a world that is any worse than this one is right now? In the 1600s. If only he could see 2020. As we approach that prophetic worst time in human history, remember, Jesus says, he's the bright morning star and he's going to rise and bring with him a brand new day that Jesus promised us he's coming for us and that we haven't been abandoned. We're not going to be here forever stuck with COVID and election years and cancer and war and divorce and lying and cheating and stealing and drugs and abuse and addiction and sin and the devil. All of those things fall under that list of former things that are going to pass away. So its content is a promise that Jesus is not going to leave us in this world this way. Its content is also an invitation that Jesus took care to tell his hearers to believe in him and be saved. 
Did you know that all the blessings in this book are reserved for those who come to Jesus to be forgiven? Now, there are blessings and there is grace in the Bible that we call theologically common grace. It's grace that belongs to everybody. What is common grace? Common grace is the fact that you woke up this morning and oxygen came into your lungs and carbon dioxide was expelled out through your nose. That's common grace. You get to breathe. Common grace is the fact that the sun shines on the house of the wicked just like it shines on the house of the righteous. Common grace is that we can enjoy a sunset. We can pet that fuzzy little puppy dog that brings us so much joy. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. You can enjoy that. You can enjoy the taste of food. You can enjoy a hot shower at the end of the day. This is common grace. It belongs to everybody. It doesn't matter if you're saved or not. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian, a Hindu, a Buddhist, whatever. God has offered you that common grace that you can enjoy the world he's put you in. But there's also specific grace. Special grace. That's saving grace. Grace that imparts to you all the promises that Jesus makes, not just in the book of Revelation, but in the Bible. Now, that, that does not belong to everybody. That belongs to the subset of people, men, women, boys, and girls in this world, who have confessed their sin to the Lord Jesus Christ, called out on him, believing in his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection to be saved. Special grace belongs to them. All the blessings in this book are reserved for those who come to Jesus to be forgiven. And all the curses in this book are reserved for those who refuse to come to Jesus for grace and mercy. There's some scary stuff in the book of Revelation, isn't there? If you haven't been with us through this, through this wonderful romp through the last book of the Bible, I challenge you, go back and read the book of Revelation. You're not going to understand all of it. I spent almost two years preaching it, and I don't understand all of it. That's okay. John didn't understand all of it when he saw it. That's why you read all the things in this book where he says, I saw something that was like this. He couldn't tell you exactly what it was. He just told you what it looked like to him as he's seeing it. You're not going to understand all of it, but you'll understand enough to know that the world gets rough between chapters 1 and 22 of this book. You don't have to fear the curses that are coming on this world. You can know Jesus and not have to worry about that. Revelation is a smaller part of a bigger message. And it's a message that has been unchanged since the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He says in Matthew 4.17, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is long, long, long in the future. Right? That's what he said? No, what did he say? At hand. It's right here. All of Jesus' warnings... And this book and all of Scripture's warnings up to this point are given out of love. You don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear hell. You don't have to fear separation from the joy of God's presence. You can confess your sin to Jesus today and be forgiven. That's why Jesus took the time to, to live, die, and live again so that you could be forgiven of your sin and be guaranteed admission into the family of God. And that is something that will not happen if you try and do it on your own steam. Do you hear me? You can try as hard as you want to. You can't do enough good to overwrite the bad that you've done, and you can't try hard enough to stop doing more bad in the future. 
It is impossible. You need grace and mercy, and God has offered them to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can have the gift of eternal life. You can take your place in the church, what Jesus calls his bride, whom he's devoted to, and reclaim the purpose that God has for you. You can accurately reflect the image and character of God and live your life, steward your life in preparation for life in a new world restored to this world's original perfection. You can have that. The contents of this book is worth paying attention to, don't you think? That's the message of this book. But if the content of the book did not push it over the top, the sender of the book ought to. That Jesus said he is the root and offspring of David. Now what on God's green earth does that mean for a bunch of us Gentiles in 2020? What does it mean that he's the root and the offspring of David? Well, we've got to go dive into our Old Testament for a minute. That way, 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 way back in Genesis 12, God called out a man named Abraham to come out of Ur of the Chaldees. Don't worry about where Ur is. Don't worry about where the Chaldees are. Don't worry about the fact that who in the world would name a city Ur. It's like, what are we going to name the city? Uh, okay, that's it. Don't worry about that. All you need to know is that humanity right before that in chapter 11 had been trying to build their way back into heaven on their own steam. They couldn't do it. Scattered and confused. But then God calls out Abraham and says, you, want, you know what? You want to get back to me? You just go where I tell you to go, and I'll take care of the rest. That's all I need you to do is trust me. And so God calls out Abraham, and Abraham has a son called Isaac, and Isaac has a son called Jacob. And Jacob gets his name changed to Israel, and Israel grows into a giant company and gets locked away in Egypt for 400 years. And then after they get locked away in Egypt for a while, God comes and brings them out under a guy named Moses. And then they wander around in the desert because they're, they're, they're dumb for a minute. And then they finally go into the promised land. And after they live there for a while, they say, we want a king. And they get a bad one. Because God said, mm, no, y'all had me for a king and you wanted a new one. So I'm going to give you one, all right. So God gives them Saul. And Saul screws up everything. And Saul finally screws up so bad that God tells the prophet Samuel, I'm going to rip the kingdom away from you, and I'm going to give it to somebody after my own heart. That man, after God's own heart, is a man we know as David. Now, David was the run of the litter. He was the kid of a man named Jesse, so much so that when Samuel came to Jesse's house looking for the king that God had told him was there, Jesse brought 11 of his sons. He didn't bring the last one. Because he's the weirdo. He's out in the field with the sheep. He's the runt. He's the little one. I didn't even bring him because I knew he wasn't the one you wanted. And Samuel said, as the Lord lives, I'm not leaving here until you bring this last son in front of me. And he brings the little runt in front of him, ruddy. And God says, that's the one. Pour the oil on his head. That's the king after my own heart. Okay. He slays giants. Plays a liar and drives a evil spirit away from King Saul eventually takes over the kingdom ushers Israel into its golden age and God makes a promise to David that you will never fail to have a son on the throne in Jerusalem and thus the Messiah was identified as the son of David but Jesus tested some Pharisees in Matthew chapter 22 verses 41 through 46 and while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One? 
The one that God's going to send to save us as a nation. What do you think about him? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And they were right, weren't they? The promised king, the deliverer, the anointed one was going to be a son of David. And they said to him, the son of David. And he asked them a question. He threw, threw them for a loop. He said, how then does David in the spirit who inspires all scripture call him Lord? And then Jesus quotes scripture and says, the Lord said to my Lord. This is in a psalm David wrote. In other words, God said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he a son? And no one was able to answer him a word, for from that day on, did anyone, no one dared question him anymore. Isn't the father usually, doesn't he usually take preeminence over the son? So if David's this Messiah's father, why in the world is he calling his son Lord? Jesus makes a claim right here in Revelation, I'll tell you why David was calling him Lord. Because somebody had to make David those promises. I made David those promises, and then I took on flesh in order that they might be fulfilled in me. Jesus is both the root and the offspring of David. Isn't a Christ that can make a promise and then personally guarantee its fulfillment in all cases, isn't that worth our attention? Yes, that's who sent this book. In Numbers 24, Balaam wasn't that good of a man. But a prophet still a prophet if he says what God told him to say. In Numbers 24, 17, he said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the star out of Jacob, the word of God made flesh, the son of David, the king of Israel, the rightful owner of earth and the Lord of all creation. And when an author like that sends a message like this to people like us. Us now. Do we even think that we warrant somebody like that saying hello to us? He didn't just say hello. He took on flesh and came and dwelt among us and died for us and rose for us and lives for us. And sent this to us so we would know not to give up. How can you ignore that message from that author? And then let me ask you this. What do you think is going to happen if you do? Do you think it's going to go well? Hebrews 2, 3 and 4 says, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, by Jesus, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, the apostles. God also bearing witness with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. God has given you evidence after evidence after evidence after testimony after testimony after testimony after word after word after word and people still don't want to listen to King Jesus. And all He's ever wanted to do is save you from yourself, your sin, death, and hell. That's all He wants. Jesus sent a very important message to his church. Church, are you going to hear it? Are you going to listen? Stop rejecting. Stop, stop pushing away. So Jesus sends an important message to his church. Second, I want you to hear that Jesus hears a joyful response from his church. Look at the first half of verse 17. And the spirit and bride say, come. 
And let him who hears say, come. So I'm going to be honest with you here. The language here is a little bit vague. You know, one of the pro- part of the process of prepping a sermon is that you go through the Bible and you see what it says and then you try and interpret it and then to make sure you're not crazy, you go read what other people who have already interpreted it wrote in their commentaries, right? So I go back and I read the commentaries and I got six or seven on Revelation. Three of them said this verse meant one thing and four of them said it meant something else. Like, <laughs> that's par for the course for this book, isn't it? That's about normal. I've about got used to it. But the question that they all centered around is who are the spirit and bride talking to? Who's the one who hears talking to? Who are they saying to come? Are they talking to Jesus? Because Jesus just said right before this in verse 12, Behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward's with me. Are they looking back to what Jesus said in verse 12? And they're saying, that sounds really good. Come, Lord Jesus. We want you to come back. Are they saying that? Or... Are they looking at the lost and pleading them to come to the Jesus who is coming quickly? Because when you look at the Greek, grammatically, it could be either. I know y'all want to go to school and go to grammar, but it's important, so we got to do it for a minute. I know y'all are excited. So any of y'all remember first person, second person, third person from, from school? Oh, oh, I hear it. Yes, those are sighs of praise to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I know that's what they are. No, y'all hated that, and I did too. So first person is, I kicked the ball. Third person is, he kicked the ball, right? Second person is, you kicked the ball. Now, anytime you get an imperative, which is do this, you know, clean your room. Give me food. (laughs) Go to the doctor. That's always in second person, right? Because I'm always talking to you. This verb is in the second person, and it's singular. It's talking to one person. Is there one Christ? Yes, there's one Messiah. So they could be talking to him as the one person. They could also be talking to a lost individual. We don't know. There is no definitive way to say it is either this one or this one. So all the folks who wrote commentaries are like, you know what, I'm going to pick one. Either we're going to choose that the Spirit and Bride are pleading with Christ to do what he just said he's going to be doing shortly and come quickly and finish the redemption of the church. If you read the verses before and interpret them in that light, this one makes the most sense. Or the Spirit and Bride are pleading with the unbeliever to hear the message sent by Jesus and be saved. And if you interpret it in light of the words after it, that makes sense. But I haven't been reading the Apostle John for too long. John loves to say one phrase that can mean two things at one time. And, and that's not a controversial statement. Have you ever said something with a dual meaning? Yeah, dual meanings are common in everyday speech, in any language. It doesn't matter. Have you ever made a pun as a joke? The very nature of a pun is you say a word that has two meanings. That's what makes it funny, right? So so we do this all the time, that you can say one thing and have it mean two things at once and then not be in contradiction. Did God inspire this book? Is it without error? Is it without error all the way down to the words and the grammar? Yes. 
It is. So if God gave us a verse that grammatically can have one of two meanings and sovereignly chose not to clarify which one it was, can I pastorally ask you the question, why can God not mean both? Why can he not? We do it. Look on your handout at Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, right? I want to say something. I want to say it very clearly. I'm going to go off on a Baptist tangent because I feel like it needs to be said. I didn't plan to say it, but I'm going to say it. When you get saved, you get all the Holy Spirit you're ever going to get. All right? There's not a second moment later where, okay, Jesus saved me, but the Holy Spirit hadn't been living in me until now, and then now I've, I've had the Holy Spirit come, come and dwell within me. That runs contrary to everything in Scripture. Now you can say, oh, well, I can think of two times when you had folks that the Holy Spirit did not dwell in. First, you see Pentecost. That's the time the Holy Spirit comes. Yeah, but nobody had the Holy Spirit indwelling them before then. Jesus said that wasn't going to happen until after his ascension. Do you really want to look me in the eye and tell me that the day after Jesus ascended, Peter wasn't saved until the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost? No, no nobody would make that argument. So that's a special case. And then when Cornelius and his family got saved, that's the Holy Spirit and dwelling Gentiles. After that, anytime you see the Holy Spirit indwell somebody, it is upon their salvation. That's scripture, period. So when you were saved, Paul says it right here, in whom also Jesus, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So the Spirit, who John says cries out with the bride, is the guarantee of of the bride, the church's inheritance. Some translations render that word guarantee, down payment, or earnest. Have you ever bought a house? Built a house? Done something like that? When you buy it from somebody, what do you do? You put down a down payment. When you make an offer, you put down what's called earnest. Which means if you go back on your offer, guess what they get to do with that earnest? They get to keep it. It belongs to them. That is this concept. God is saying, in Jesus, you, you believed in Jesus, you trusted him, but now while you're waiting for the finalized redemption, while you're waiting for your resurrection, your glorified body, the world that's going to be remade, while you're waiting on that, I'm going to live in you as proof that my promise is good. That's a down payment of the finished work. Upon our justification, the Spirit indwells us and commences the process of sanctification, making us look more like Jesus on a daily basis, preparing us for the day of our glorification, when all of creation is redeemed as we will be. Did you know that the Spirit that dwells in us is just as much looking forward to the return of Christ as we are? Have you ever thought about that? That the Spirit is ready for the work to be finished. He's not tired. That's not why he's anxious for it. He's anxious because he's excited. 
He's ready for the world to be made new. He's ready for sin to be gone. He's ready for us as believers to finally enjoy all of the promises and glory that God has for us. The Spirit is crying out to Jesus and saying, come back. Scripture already tells us that He prays on behalf of us with groanings unutterable, doesn't He? You think you're praying for Jesus to come back. The Spirit cries out and says, Come, Lord Jesus. In 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul says, Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also all who what? Loved His appearing. The church, the bride of Christ, the faithful of all ages, ought to be ready for her wedding day. There is something that goes on in the minds and hearts of girls that, fellas, we can never relate to. I have witnessed it. I can't say in my own marriage, I'll say in my own wedding. Because this kind of leads up to a point. Ladies, true or false? You started thinking about your wedding like when you were like 12. True. I hear true. Y'all started playing, oh, I like that kind of dress. That's pretty. I'm going to spend six hours getting my hair done that morning. <laughs> I remember I woke up on my wedding day and hit the snooze button. <laughs> and then realized, oh, it's today. And ignored it. And got up and presently was terrified. Yep, I see the nods, yes. Was it Billy Graham used to say, I see that hand. I see that head. Yeah. And I was excited. I was thrilled. But you know, I, I started getting excited whenever I had a ring in my hand. Because then it was real. No, it's been real to girls since y'all were like nine. Y'all knew it was coming. Y'all were excited about it. Well, the church is called the bride of Christ. Church, are we as excited about the day Jesus comes back for us as we should be? Do we think about it the way we should? Do we anticipate it the way that we should? If the, because you know what? If we're lukewarm about the return of Jesus, people out there are not going to be compelled at all to hear what we have to say. If you're not excited about Jesus and you know him, why on earth would somebody out there who's never met him care anything about him? If the church, motivated by the Spirit, is constantly preparing for its wedding day by loving Jesus, loving those He died to save, and maintaining service and faithfulness and zeal until He comes, I promise you it will get people's attention. Those who hear the Spirit and the bride will see their joy and want to join them, and they can be saved too. So the bride of Christ is excited about Jesus' return. The Spirit is excited about Jesus' return. Those who look on ought to be excited about Jesus' return. And, and, and let me also go off script for a minute and share something. It's an anecdote from my personal life. I was speaking to somebody that um, I consider myself friends with. And I just casually dropped one day, whew, it would be nice if Jesus would just go ahead and come back. I mean, right? Have you ever felt that way? 
man, it would be great if Jesus would just come back. And their response to me was, I'm not ready for that yet. I got some stuff I need, I'd like to experience first. And I remember sitting there, because this person professed to be a Christian. I remember sitting there with stunned silence, kind of flooding me because I didn't quite know how to respond to that. That's like a, 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 a fiancé on her wedding day looking at her groom and saying, can we postpone this tomorrow because i got a couple of guys I'd like to call and chat with before that's inappropriate. <laughs> that's exactly what that is when someone claims to be a Christian says, I would rather delay Christ's return because I've got some things that I actually love more than Jesus that I would like to experience today before he comes and takes them away and I'm stuck with him. Husbands, please never call your wife your old ball and chain. Wives, please never call your husband that. What does that communicate? I'm stuck. I'm a prisoner. I'd love to be free. When the church talks about the return of Christ and says, Woo, I hope, I would just like to, to, to do this or have this for a little bit longer, you're probably not saved. If that's your mindset, you're probably not saved. The church ought to look forward to the return of Jesus Christ. The Spirit looks forward to the return of Jesus Christ. Those who are saved because of the zeal of the church and the Spirit, they look at them and say, I want what they've got. They are looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ and they all say, come. But there's a second meaning. That Jesus hears the, the joy of His church. But Jesus also extends an invitation to the lost. Jesus also extends an invitation to the lost. Look at the second half of verse 17. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Now you got the same word, uh, let him who thirsts come, right? You got that word. It's the same word in English. It's not the same word in Greek. We've changed. It's no longer an imperative in the second person. It's now in the third person. Now it's talking about someone else. So if you read it in light of the first verses, it, it, they'd be talking to Jesus. And they are. And the church does. And the Spirit does. And those who hear and respond, they do. They look at Jesus and they say, come. But the Spirit in the church and those who are saved because of their witness also look at the lost as individual men, women, boys and girls and look at them and say, come if you thirst Come, if you desire the water of life, come, take it freely. It's offered to you without cost. That is grammatically clear in the Greek, that that's what's happening in the second half. If the first half implores Jesus to come back for the church, the second half, the church implores the lost to come to Jesus. And to be sure, Jesus is going to respond to the call of the Spirit and the bride when the time is right. But who do you think leads the charge in reaching the lost? Who do you think that is? It's not the church. Because left to our own devices, 
we'll just sit soaking sour, won't we? There's a reason that the word for spirit in Hebrew is ruach. Ruach. It's fun to say. Has two meanings. It can mean spirit. It can also mean wind or breath. The word for spirit in Greek is the word pneuma. Any of y'all got any pneumatic tools? What are they powered by? Air. Pneuma. Air. Air powered. The church ought to be pneumatic. We ought to be spirit powered. The Spirit is actually the driving force behind reaching the lost. It is the motivating work of the Holy Spirit in a church's life that causes the lost people that it comes in contact to to be saved. Ask the Ethiopian eunuch from Acts 8.29 who brought Philip to him with the gospel. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake that chariot. The Holy Spirit directed Paul to Macedonia to preach the gospel. Look at Acts 16, 6-10. Now when they'd gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach, in the, preach the word in Asia. Oh my goodness. And after they'd come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after they'd seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. They went where the Spirit wanted them to go. Now if they had gone to Asia, if they had gone to Bithynia, do you think they would have had any gospel success? Absolutely not. Because that's not where the Spirit wanted them to go. The church's first martyr, Stephen, told the Pharisees and legalists that in resisting the message of the gospel, they were resisting who? The Holy Spirit. Acts 8, 51-53. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you have become betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Peter was speaking by the Holy Spirit, and what was he preaching? The gospel. The Holy Spirit wanted the people hearing Stephen to repent of their sin and be saved. You know who was standing there as Stephen was preaching this? Holding the coats of the men who were about to kill him by throwing rocks at him? Saul was. Saul was standing there as Stephen spoke by the Holy Spirit's power. And do you know that that Holy Spirit gnawed at Paul until he buckled? That that day bothered him and he never got over it. How do I know that? Because he said it himself. The Holy Spirit goaded Paul forward until he listened to Jesus and became Paul instead of Saul. Paul himself said in Acts 26, 14, when we'd all fallen to the ground, this is on the Damascus road, this is when Paul's getting saved, when we'd all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. The Holy Spirit had been following Paul around going, you know he was right. You know he was right. You know he was right. And I'm not talking about poking him in the back. I'm talking about that guy who comes up behind you. 
poke you in the ribs. You know what a goad is? We're in South Georgia. Y'all know what a goad is. You got a cow or an ox or something that doesn't want to move. Sometimes they're sharp little pokers. Sometimes the new the newfangled ones are electric. Zap! Go that way. Zap! Nope, go that way. That's what a goat is. The Holy Spirit was up behind Paul going, Zap! You know he's right. Zap! You know Jesus is the truth. Zap! You know you were wrong. And Paul finally falls on his face and goes, Who are you? And Jesus goes, Are you kidding me? I'm the one who sent the Holy Spirit to poke you until you fell on your face in front of me so I can make you different. The Holy Spirit was behind that. Every man, woman, boy, or girl who has ever come to Jesus came to Jesus because the Holy Spirit singled him out and poked him or her in the ribs until they listened. The Holy Spirit does this through members of the body of Christ. The church is to look at the lost and invite them to come to Christ because the Spirit is working in us to do that. And in that way, both the Spirit and the bride look at the lost and say, come. Now, it's important. Joyce, I want to thank you for your service because you don't know this, but the Holy Spirit used you preparing this, this, this Sunday. Whosoever surely meaneth me. What lost? All of them. All of them. The ones in our backyard, the ones who are addicts, the ones who are abused, the ones who are sick, the ones who are poor, the ones who are rich, the ones who are black, white, Hispanic, Asian, single moms, married, lost, divorced, lost, young, lost, old, lost, all the lost. That's who Jesus wants to reach. There is no such thing as fine church people. I love you all. But there's no such thing as fine church people. If anybody ever walks in that back door and you don't want them here, a crazy thing will happen. They won't stay. The dangerous part about telling somebody you don't want them there is that they might listen. Saul was a temple-sanctioned murderer before he became Paul. Peter was a fisherman and proved that a sailor's mouth dies hard whenever that little girl outside Jesus' trial said, weren't you with him? Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. Simon was a zealot, and there were probably some Roman soldiers walking around with the knife scars to prove it. Zacchaeus was a turncoat tax collector to the Roman government, and he was a thief to boot. Ruth was a Moabite, Rahab was a harlot, Jacob was a trickster, David was a murderer and adulterer, Moses was a murderer, Aaron, the first high priest, melted down people's jewelry, turned it into a golden cow, and then encouraged the entire nation to throw a filthy, raucous party and bow down to what he made. And we consider these people to be the Hall of Fame. Right? The truth is, we're all at least that bad or worse. But the water of life is made available to anybody who's thirsty. Anybody. 
Whosoever surely meaneth you and you and you and you and me. Jesus offers that to anybody for free. He doesn't tell you to get better. That's like saying get well before you go see the doctor. It doesn't make sense. Well, I've got to get my life straightened out before I come to Jesus. Brother, sister, you can't. You can't. Jesus is the one that will get you straightened out. Jesus is the one that will give you life. Jesus is the one that will forgive you. Jesus is the one that will give you purpose and meaning and fulfillment and joy. He doesn't tell you to find it and come to him when you got it. If Jesus didn't want you to be warned and be saved, why on earth am I holding this? You want to know proof of miracles? God spoke and we can read it. That's a miracle. Do you want to be saved? Do you want to take of the water of life freely? You can. You can have it. It's for you. And I know for a fact that the bride of Christ, the church is saying come because I'm up here being the voice for Stapleton right now. But right now... If you're getting goaded, if you're getting poked in the ribs and the Holy Spirit saying, zap, that's you, zap, that's you, I'm talking to you. He's doing his part. Answer him. Because I'm going to be honest, I'm going to pray that he keeps zapping you until you listen. I'm not going to pray for your peace. I'm going to pray for your Holy Spirit-inspired misery unto salvation. Because I promise you it's for your good. Because I promise you, getting goaded by the Holy Spirit and getting a little zap here and there is a whole lot better than hearing depart from me. I never knew you. A whole lot better. Joyce is going to come lead us in a couple verses of an invitation hymn. And all you got to do is, is catch my eye. And say, Pastor, I need to be saved. I need to talk to you. And I'll stay with you after church. I wish I could stand down front and I could, I could receive you like I normally would. But it's not the world we live in right now. But that doesn't mean when church is over I won't put, up my, put on my mask and come down there with you. I'm going to pray. And Joyce is going to sing. and or Joyce is going to play. We're going to sing. And if you need to come, you come. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.